Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everyone? Austin, you've been busy. I have I? I guess, I guess... yeah. The stuff we're not talking about yet. but <laughs> <laughs> I guess we can talk about it a little bit. I've been looking to get... You and I know, like I had conversations with you over the past year yeah. about the mortgage space. It was something I was always interested in, but there were a lot of other things keeping me busy. There were other things that I wanted to focus on. But obviously, with the way that the market is shifting now, I have a little bit more free time on my hands. And I thought that this would be a pretty cool venture to, to jump into, especially now more than ever. I know it's, it may seem contradictory to people. I think now is actually a good time to double down on branding, building a business. And then when and we were talking about it, when things pick back up, yeah. we'll eventually reap the rewards. Right. So I think actually, oddly enough, it's a good time to get in the space now. Things are going to be a little bit slower. I have more time to learn, adapt to things. We talked about it that would probably be working closely together on the mortgage side. So yeah, I mean, just pick up on a couple of things. So when things pick back up, for you, it was a little bit different. When you got started, like you had a million yeah. things all at once. And I, I don't want it. That must have been tough to pick up on, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's sort of what... So I've been studying a little bit. It's pretty... Honestly, a lot of it is is straightforward. It's just the regulatory bodies, contract law, and all of that stuff where it's like, okay, like this is just dull information I need to memorize. Yeah, useless stuff for the exam. But I think everyone right now should really be looking into like alternative streams of income, different things to kind of do, right? Like I've been talking to quite a few different like people getting into various businesses. Like how do I, sometimes it's how do I have a capacity equity state because I don't have time or energy to deal with this thing? Or, you know, how do I, like what can I contribute from an active perspective, right? So quite a few different like, you know, income streams that we're exploring. I'm just very cognizant of obviously capital requirements for some of these businesses. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not sure if I want to sink money into here, but if it's something yeah. I can get into with like my own time or resources or something like that, then it's like pretty attractive, right? But exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now is probably not the time to be taking too many chances with your liquidity. Speaking yeah. of speaking of liquidity and all of that, Bank of Canada, rate hike. What a year. <laughs> Should we talk about that a little bit? Um, I, I mean, I, I think it was priced into the market. Like for the most part, for the last like two, three weeks, it's been uh, decreasing expectation of a rate hike in October, right? If you go back to September and like before the inflation numbers came out at 3.8, I think it was kind of like it could go either way. But as soon as inflation came out at 3.8, it seemed like everyone had kind of switched, um, switched gears a little bit. And, and kind of future guidance is also pretty interesting, I think. Bank of Canada is trying to stay, what is it, hawkish, I think is the right word, um, where like they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, say we might still increase and so on and so on. Because all, look, part of this is, I was reading this Reddit on this exact topic and they're like, how do we reduce Canadians? What's the word? Consumption? Like, not, not consumption. It's just like our, our attitude towards real estate. It's like, as soon as we see a little bit of a rate cut, it's like, oh, let's go buy real estate. You know, oh, let's lever up again. Let's take on more debt, right? Which is kind of like, kind of crazy. And it's not the ideal way to be doing things. Like you, you want to be able to reduce your interest rate to stimulate spending in the economy, not to fucking increase real estate prices. You know what I mean? But we're so tied to real estate here that it's kind of a turnoff to a lot of people, it sounds like. But 
And not that I have a solution. We have a structure. <laughs> in the bank of Canada presser, I was listening through it. And typically in a normal sort of setting when, and people know this, right? When interest rates increase, you should see prices move down in lockstep in high yeah. credit yeah. industries such as real estate. That's not the case here because there's a structural issue in the, uh, I was going to say province, in, in Canada, the country of Canada, yeah. right? Specifically in Ontario and BC. It didn't happen in the U.S. either. I think technically it's every 1% should be a 10%. Well, U.S. Person. is a little bit different, right? The U.S. has the U.S.'s structure is based on a 30 year mortgage. And so they're not yeah. as interest rate sensitive, whereas we are variable two, three, four, five year fixed. Right. So yeah. you would expect it to have more pressure. They've also mentioned that they were cognizant of the fact that there's going to be more renewals within the next year and the year after that. That's going to have pressure on consumption from Canadians. Right. But you're right. It seems like this is probably the end of the rate hikes. A lot of the bond market is doing the pure. And this is not my opinions, right? Like I'm not an economist. I I don't want to be a pseudo economist as well. These are just things that I read, like through articles, Bloomberg headlines, some people I follow on Twitter. But it seems like the bond market is doing a lot of the heavy lifting, right? When when yields are high, generally people will opt into saving more money. They're opt into spending yep. less because credits is more expensive and that will hamper consumer demand. It's true. I literally just took like a couple thousand dollars yesterday and moved it into like a, a TFSA account. I was like, fuck, you know, Scotia is right now paying a 7.5 dividend yield. But Scotia is also taking a beating on their stock price. No they idea are, why, yeah. but yeah, you know, 7.5 dividend yield for a well, stock. Well, the banks have, Scotia had a 3% layoff, right? Yeah. <laughs> a, little bit of, a little bit of restructuring is always good for business. <laughs> I don't think people react well to that with bank banks. Earnings are getting absolutely smashed. <laughs> Yo, but people are not taking out credit, dude. They make money on on spread, right? Like that's how the banks always make money. But anyways, <laughs> I think if you're dealing with like a 5% GIC or a 7.5 dividend yield on a stock, the stock also has upside potential on the, the essentially the value and, and the stock price. That's pretty attractive. So bought myself, I think like 30 or 40 shares of that yesterday. Something like that. We'll see. Buy myself a little bit more next week. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of like, yeah, investing is definitely more attractive than spending. I was explaining this because I, I got rid of the S5 last last week or the week, week before, something like that. And I was explaining this to uh, Marco, my team. Um, I was like, when I bought the S5, I just had zero time to to do anything with my, my capital. Like I didn't have time to go out and buy investment properties. I didn't have time to, you know, even properly like look at like private loans or like anything like that for myself, right? It was like an environment where we were just like grinding, grinding, grinding. And so therefore the one thing that you can do with your money is spend it. So I put like a decent down payment towards that's why when I bought it right now, when I bought, cause we, we switched to a Q5, like an STV and I was, and the guy was like, how much down payment do you want to put? I'm like zero fucking dollars because every dollar that I put towards a down payment on a car is, is money away from a potential loan that I could do or potential investments or like a Scotia dividend yielding buy that I can make. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot more uses on the investment side right now for your capital than there was. 18 months ago. The problem is that everyone is too scared to invest. It's just a reality. Yeah. So, yeah, agreed. Agreed. I think the uh, other quick thing I want to touch on is, uh, I mean, actually speaking on the Scotia, the di- 7% is a really good dividend yield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. yeah. Right. Like it's like, it's, it's sick. The only thing is, is that Scotia has been pretty flat the past, I don't know, seven, eight years, the share price, it'd go like high twenties to low twenties to 14 and back up. Scotia is a weird one. <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah. like a TD or an RBC. Yeah, TD and RBC are sitting at like five percent. I was like, yeah, that's not. Nah, but the not more stable, like they're they're bigger banks, right? They're 
They're yeah, take they're a little more bit of stable than, than than Scotia. We think Scotia's like a Desjardins? No, like Scotia's more like a federal bank. Here, it yeah. is, it is. But the upside potential, I think, would be pretty capped there. You just look at the five year. Like I think that stock high was twenty twenty five bucks over the past five years. What are you talking about? Scotia's <laughs> a seven seventy. Uh, no, it was like seventy something. BNF sure? stock price. So right now it's sitting at fifty six point one two. So we've destroyed Austin's five year high. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was looking at the wrong one. What the hell am I looking at? Back non cumulative uh, five year. That's what I was looking February, at. February February eighteen or March whatever was around ninety bucks, but obviously that was a stupid high, right? So but what is it right year, now? Uh, right now it's down to fifty six. It looks like the. I don't know if you were to draw. Oh, no, line. you're right. Yeah, yeah. What the fuck was I looking at, dude? Yeah, that's not if bad you, at all. If you're a dry, dry line through the middle, this is probably somewhere around like 70, somewhere around like 60 yeah. to 70 bucks, which like, it's fine. Like, you know, even if you get like a, a 10% increase plus the dividend yield, 10% increase might be over like a couple of years. That's okay. That's still an extra like two, 3%. So you're sitting at like an average rate of return of like 10%. Fucking not bad. So anyways, I'm going to take I'm going to get back into the stock market. Not really, but, um, you know, D- diversifying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, diversify. I think it makes sense not to deploy all your liquidity in this market too. You know, you got to, a lot of people that, oh, real estate's going to pick back up. Maybe so, but you got to cap the downside risk as well. And the last thing that I want to mention is some prices that we've been seeing some some sales in Toronto. Mm. Toronto condos for sure. There are some condos yeah. trading at 2019, but condos have been sideways for so long anyways. But freehold, my buddy just picked up a freehold almost at 2019 prices. And just anecdotally, if you go on some of those red flag deal threads, you're seeing <laughs> there's a cool little uh, trend there where people are posting, here are some comps for 2019. Here's what sold recently. And we're seeing some properties sell back at prices four years ago, which is insane. <laughs> like four yeah, years ago, some properties have been wiped. Everyone knows I love Scarborough bungalows. <laughs> 2019, the pricing was sitting around seven to 800 for these Scarborough bungalows, maybe like low eight, right? And so that's kind of been my benchmark as well. Like if I could buy at or around 700, I would buy. There's a couple listed right now. I think one was listed at 749 or 699, like great area. Like I bought in that area for like 679 back in 2018, right? So I'm very tempted. The, the only downside is like, fuck, I got to tie up all this capital. Yeah. I got to go on the B side to buy the financing. And I'm trying to evaluate, like, do I want to buy with partners? It tries to get me like cheaper financing, but I don't know. I'm kind of at a point where, Less headaches is more is, is is a better way to live, right? So yeah, I was like, I'd rather have just and one. Also, do you want to take that? It's like a bet at the end of the day, right? Because you know it's not going to cash flow in the short term. So do you want to take that bet that prices are going to recover? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm have a rooming house that's going to cash flow. You're gonna have- <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's room, eight, eight, bedrooms, eight, eight bedrooms in a bungalow, thousand a room. I'm doing it. <laughs> not that I shit. mean, if, if if things don't go well for me, maybe I'll uh, crash yeah, one of those. It. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a night. I'll be the property management there. Enough rambling from us. We're going to jump into today's episode. We have TK Butler with us. If you guys don't know TK, actually, if you heard the previous episode with Daryl, together they host the Canadian Real Estate Show, one of my personal favorite real estate podcasts out there. Make sure to check that out. But TK is an amazing real estate broker in the GTA area. He's been in the game for over a decade. He specializes in residential, multifamily, and commercial. He's done it all. He's on land assembly. He is a really well-versed real estate investor and a real estate investor-focused realtor. We get into today's market dynamics, opportunities in the market, things to look out for. So if you guys are looking to break into the real estate market in GTA, 
you definitely need to check this episode out. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review, share it with a friend, and let's jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, TK Butler. TK, thank you so much for jumping on. How's it going, my man? Thanks, Austin. Appreciate it. Looking forward to our chat today. This is long overdue. For those who don't know, I was featured on your podcast. I think it was sometime this time last year. So we're going in full circle now. Finally have you on ours. It's the reciprocal uh, podcaster uh, guest uh, method. (laughs) You have me on your show, I'll have you on mine. But I mean, the people all doing the podcasts all are in one space or or the next. So they all seem to be great guests. We've had a lot of great uh, podcast hosts on our our YouTube channel hosts on our podcast and they've all been great guests. So Awesome. And for those who don't know who you are, TK, would you be able to share maybe a quick minute or two summary of, of what you do, how you got started in investing and sort of your background? Sure. So I'm a realtor, which I had to do the math the other day is over 16 years now in Toronto. Always looked at uh, the real estate business as just about helping people and trying to be able to navigate the, the uncertainty of the market and everything else like that. I got into selling businesses and um, certain types of commercial properties about uh, a couple of years in, maybe, you know, so 13 years ago, around 2009, so 14 years ago, just by chance, just because I was interested in it. So I just started doing a lot of research in it. It wasn't something that I had initially planned on doing. And so I became familiar with stuff like uh, balance sheets and pro formas and, and, you know, why somebody was going into a certain investment. So it always interested me at the time. So real estate as a job has always been there for me. I, I enjoy it. I love it. I, I do what I do. Get up every day, uh, happy, happy to be involved in the industry. Investing has always been something that at different times of my career, different times of market conditions, I've been more active in than others. And I could tell you a little bit about that, depending on me being on the active side or the passive side and how I've sort of navigated those waters and tried to figure out what was best for me. But I'm always very flexible in those ways. And uh, yeah, we started our podcast in 2020, middle of the pandemic, bored at home, not doing much. And like many podcasts that were formed in those times, and we just kept on doing it. So every single week we're on YouTube and all the podcast platforms. We release a one hour long, long format podcast episode every single week. We bring on different guests like yourself and other investors and real estate people and industry people and funny people and anybody who really is willing to talk to us. And I'm on this journey of life, you know, still trying to figure things out. And if I ever do, I'll let you guys know and I'll tell you how to do it yourself. But in the meantime, I'm just on a learning path of uh, trying to appreciate what I have and to be able to live life to its fullest. And, uh, you know, I'm happy where, where I am today. So very, very humble introduction, man. And you guys are crushing it in the podcast space. I see you on YouTube with like thousands of views per video which I find in YouTube, it's even more tough. Maybe I'm wrong, but I find that it's tougher to get views on long form content than on Spotify and Apple. I remember when I was on your podcast, you guys were just, uh, if I remember correctly, we're chatting, you're at a couple hundred downloads, but now it seems like your podcast is just blown up through that consistency. Yeah, I wouldn't say like we have that figured out by any means, but we definitely are consistent. If there's anything we're doing right, it's by just continually putting out one episode every single week, trying to bring value, enjoying what we're doing, bringing on guests that we think people will connect with, not listening to all the noise, being willing to be vulnerable and let people know what's really going on with us. We've built a uh, an audience, a loyal audience who listens to us every week and 
yeah, it's growing. So no, we're super impressed. Like if you told me three years ago that we'd have over a thousand views, like a room full of a thousand people listening to what we had to say every week, we'd be like, no, that's not going to happen. And now like it's something like 130,000 a month or something like that crazy on, on all the different platforms and views and, and everything else that we're getting. So it's pretty impressive. I think one thing that's, uh, I'm not going to boost your ego here. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll jump into the content soon. But one thing that I really like about your podcast, yours and Daryl's podcast is, is that you focus on relevant sort of news, right? So there's articles that come out throughout the week. You guys actually discuss it on the platform and give your thoughts on it too, which not many, not many podcasts really do, right? It's, it's mostly sort of the format that we have here where you interview a guest, hear their journey, so on and so forth. I've been inspired a lot by you guys and sort of the way that you guys structured that podcast. So I'm trying to do a little bit more here, which is why I bought you on because you'd be the perfect guest to talk about the market, what's happening, what's working, what's not. As I know that you're still remaining busy and active in the real estate space. Let's jump on in, actually. Let's start off with a bit more about your background. So you got started in real estate, as you mentioned, then you jumped into some of the businesses in the commercial space. What are you specializing now as a realtor? So anything that has to do with like residential investment. So a lot of people get caught up in the whole commercial and residential side where they'll say, well, you're either a commercial realtor or you're doing residential properties or something along those lines. But as long as somebody's going to live in it, I'm able to work with a client on either developing it or buying, selling it because there's a residential element to it. I'm not getting involved in industrial space and retail. I've been down that road before, you know, and I've dug into it. it just doesn't interest me. Like when I first started selling businesses in the beginning, I really liked that. I really like dealing with these business owners, selling franchises, dealing with the franchisor, getting approval, dealing with leases, get, going on the commercial space. Like I had a passion for it and, and it made a lot of sense from like little $50,000 places that were like mom and pop shops to big franchises. And then I just lost interest in it and I stopped doing it. And then I started referring that business out. When I was dealing with some of the different types of properties that would come across my desk, I'd look at them and I would start maybe learning about them and everything else. And then, I, you know, maybe I do a few deals, but then I'd say, you know, I like, I'm not really too interested. I don't really understand it that much. I need to learn a lot of information to be good at it. And I'm not that interested in it. So I would stop. As soon as I would get into residential investment, as soon as it was about creating housing, whether it be subdivisions for detached houses or a townhouse block or condos, purpose-built rentals, all that kind of stuff. I was interested. I was like, wow, you know, like people are going to live here. This is I want to know how this stuff is built. I want to know how it's developed. And like, I, it's just nonstop learning. I just, I want to dig into it. So I stick to residential use properties for development and investment to make sure that at some point down the road, even if it's a vacant piece of piece of land that's going to be developed in the future for housing, I want to know all about it to make sure that I can help my clients and invest myself too, right? Because I like to find out what the next uh, best investment is going to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I don't think we we touched on that, but you specialize in the GTA, right? Specifically Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, definitely in the in the GTA. So specifically Toronto, you have different properties brought to you and, and stuff like that too. I try to get people out to one of our team members in those areas. So we've got a few different team members throughout sort of Southern Ontario now. So I've got a really great network of people mm -hmm. that I can trust. And then if it's a type of property that maybe they're not as familiar with, I can help guide them because we're all sort of under the same umbrella. And so that's been a big, a big asset for me. So I joined Frank Leon Associates five years ago. So we're a big Toronto team. If anybody's listening and they're in Toronto, they, they know who Frank Leo is. You know, he's a big name. So that marketing reach that we have brings in a lot of calls from different people. I'm the commercial multifamily and investment guy on the team. 
And so we have members that are my partners all throughout, I don't even know, Hamilton to Northumberland up north of Barrie. So like I've got a really big reach. So when people come to me and they've got a property of mine that's outside of my area of specialties, I'm able to guide them and put them in the hands of somebody that I know cares about them and is going to make sure they do the right thing. So. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's something that not all realtors do, right? Some realtors just want to keep all the business for themselves, but it seems like you already know what your specialty is and you're not you're not going to waste time with things outside of your region, right? You specialize in something and, and that's what you cater towards. I want to jump into a bit of market trends. I think that's going to be an interesting topic. You guys talk about it a lot in your podcast, but just like general sort of question, what's the overall sentiment trends that you're seeing uh, boots on the ground right now in Toronto? And it could be on the residential space. It could be on the multifamily space. Well, yeah, let's just try to focus for the investors, right? Because that's, uh, I think, the bulk of your audience. So, I mean, there's a lot less investors out there right now than there has been for a long time. I think the confidence is very low. The amount of inquiries that I'm getting on listings that would normally be fantastic, whether it be the cap rate or financing options or location, or value add, like, all that type of stuff that used to be just the phone would be ringing off the hook. It's just not happening as much anymore. So it's a lot harder to find people who are actually still even willing to buy, right? And we're starting to see more and more people who own properties, who one category is they probably shouldn't own uh, investment property. So they, they bought it and they thought it was going to be easy. And now uh, because of maybe they're on a variable rate or, or something like that, they're they're in a position where they have to sell or they're motivated now to, to move it. Or they're people who have owned the property for a long time. They're maybe mortgages paid off a long time ago. They aren't really in the need to sell as far as their backs up against the wall, but they want to be able to divest, take their money and put it somewhere else. And they've been through recessions. The writing's on the wall for them. They're thinking, I've had it really good. Why don't I just cash out? And, and so those are the people that I'm meeting mostly because I'm mostly dealing with um, sellers on the investment side. But that number is growing. So I've got a shrinking buyer population. I've got a growing seller population. Eventually, this leads to uh, price erosion. I mean, eventually, we're going to start seeing the prices being a lot more attractive. Cap rates start to expand into where they maybe were in the past on like a, on a, on a 20, 25-year average or maybe 10-year average if we're looking at just population growth in Canada or Toronto. But you definitely have a, a concerning element that I've noticed especially over the last six months. Last year, the market changed, but some people didn't get the message. And now more and more as time goes on, I'm I'm noticing that we really do have a lot of issues that people are going to have to address eventually from the high debt loads that they're carrying to how to finance a property, how to carry the property. We got a lot of properties that have tenants who've been there for a long time where the rents are 50% of what market rents are. So like those buildings... How easy are they to, to sell? How motivated is the seller to, to move it? What are their options? So I think we're going to see a lot more people being pushed up against the wall to transact and, and that for whatever reason, they're going to have to move their properties at the best price they can possibly get. And their selections are going to be limited. It's just, I hate to say it, but it's just the reality of, of what the market has brought on. We've had too much appreciation over the last little while. It's not just on the residential side where incomes haven't caught up. now. You know, we could say, well, rents haven't caught up, but rents were limited on most of this stock that I'm talking about is all rent control. So it's all limited to whatever rent they've been collecting. And then the the two and a half percent or whatever the prescribed amount was for the the year that they're selling in is allowed to increase it by. So 
you're really behind on rents now. Rents haven't caught up to the debt service cost and where the values are today and that they just can't support it. So the fundamentals, I believe, are off and people are going to have to be very uh, selective in who they sell to or who they end up selling with, but they're going to have to take the best offer they can get in order to move their properties unless they come up with really creative solutions, which we'll talk about on how these deals are being structured right now, which deals are actually going through and which ones aren't. Yeah. So I I definitely want to jump into that next, but just uh, add some commentary around what you were saying. There's a lot I agree with you there. Cap rates usually are pretty, they're pretty sticky, right? But, but as you mentioned, as time goes on, it's been, it's been nearly two years um, or almost we're, we're going to head towards two years since the initial February, 2022 decline in prices. And I think people are starting to realize that in order to move the inventory, they're going to need to sell it at a desirable price. But uh, to to your point, with the tenant situation right now, with the rents going out of control, it's nearly impossible to turn around these tenants to buy these buildings at the at the cap rates that there are now under market rent. It's going to take forever to eventually bring it up to the highest and best sort of value. But uh, you mentioned that there are some particular buildings that are still moving as long as sellers remain negotiable. What sort of buildings are those? Do you have any examples um, that you can give? And as a buyer, on the buyer side of things, as the stress building up in the multifamily, what should I be looking out for as a buyer? Are there any particular clauses or negotiation tactics that I could use to secure a good deal? Yeah, so that's a very, there's a lot of answers here. So the first one we'll say is um, as far as cap rates. So you started with that. So yeah, cap rates are not where they used to be, but sellers are still trying to hang on because they heard that their neighbor, they heard that their last building they sold, they heard that their agent told them, yada, 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 yada. But if you're on the market for months and nobody's making you an offer or their offers are very low, then you need to look at the writing on the wall and understand where buyers actually feel the value of your property is, right? Because of the inconsistency in the market right now, it's hard to tell. Sometimes it's hard to tell what the net operating income is of a property. Sometimes it's hard to tell how much capital expenditures were required for the buyer to be able to take on when they bought the property. Sometimes it's hard to tell, you know, what type of financing. Was there VTB involved in the purchase? Was there an assumable mortgage? Was vacant possession provided on closing, right? Like there's a ton of things that it's just like, we don't really know. And so you see the sale prices afterwards, unless you've got some insider information on the deal, you kind of just have to like guess a little bit and maybe make some assumptions to try to figure out what happened. And then you guide the, the seller on how to try to achieve those same results. And I think if you're not experienced as an agent, your seller is saying, well, like that was their income. That's how much they sold for. That's how many units they have. So I want that price too. And the agent is going, well, if they could do it, I could do it without any understanding of how they were able to achieve that price. And so that's why you have this huge inconsistency because you're seeing buildings are like, man, that was a great deal. But like, we don't know what's involved. There's actually a lot of big portfolios going on right now, 100 plus units where there's equity being transferred. So there's shares being transferred of these properties. So people are buying into the properties, big, you know, whether it be REITs or development companies are actually buying into properties and getting a share based on some sort of price per door or or cap rate evaluation that they're doing. So like, there's a ton of activity that's going on that, you know, we don't really have the full amount of information that we're going to be privy to. So you have to really just take things with a grain of salt and just focus on the fundamentals, focus on the information that you do know, focus on buyer's feedback that you had from your other clients and things like that too, and not get caught up in one sale or the next, which is 
it's always been like that. It's just sellers have a hard time looking past that one example of why they should get more money. But to keep on going with you with your uh, question that you had, when we're looking at properties, we're trying to find ways to be creative in order to make the deal work. So like one deal I'm working on right now is a nine unit that's in the core. They've got a assumable CMHC MLI select mortgage. I think it's 2.1% with 10 years left on it, something like that. And so what's the value to that, right? Like how much is that worth when you are able to give the buyer such like in any, in any world, 2% mortgage, like what, like it makes no sense. <laughs> but if you were a, a multifamily owner at the right time, when rates were at their lowest and you refinance your building or you bought the building, whatever it is, you got the CMHC product, good for you. And you've been able to benefit from that low cost of debt service, but now you're going to benefit from the sale price of your building because you have this mortgage that in most of the cases can be uh, assumed by the buyer. You know, there's net worth qualifications. There's other factors that are involved. They're not all that easy, but uh, it's definitely a possibility. So you have to explore, you have to talk to the lender, you have to talk to, uh, look at the mortgage uh, commitment and mortgage document to figure out exactly what necessary steps have to be taken in order to be able to assume the mortgage. But bottom line is, if it does get assumed and then you see that sale of that property, that has to be taken into consideration because it's it's a huge, huge, huge factor when somebody's deciding on how much they can pay for a building. Because the difference between 2% and 7% is monumental, right? And so as an investor, when you're looking at, I'm going to pay, what's the spread on my cap rate versus the the interest that I'm paying? If I got to pay 7% and you want a three cap, it's just not happening. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just, there, there just is no deal there and there's never going to be a deal there. Right. And so sellers have to understand that. So we're looking at those options. That's, that's, I think a great product to get because it's not just short term. The VTBs I'm doing are short term. They're expecting and basically relying on the buyer to be able to reposition the asset and refinance out with CMHC uh, within two years. But if that CMHC mortgage is already there and it's like this great rate with like a 35, 40 year amortization and you're able to just take it over. So far, a lot of the buildings that I'm seeing are delta between where their loan is and and the um, price that they want is still too big. But if you can work them down to something reasonable and the cap rate makes sense and you can figure out how to get in at 65, 75% loan to value, then you got a good buy there. Um, on the VTB side, I mean, the benefit of the VTB to the seller, obviously, right, is taking advantage of today's market. Because right now, if you're going to go and sell a property and I'm going to sell the property, let's say I got a 10 unit building and I want to be able to move it as fast as I can and I want to get the most amount of money and yada, 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 yada. Well, if I got the building paid off and I'm willing to offer the buyer financing, let's say 75, 80% loan to value, you know, depending on who the buyer is, what their skill set experiences, you know, how much net worth they've got, all that kind of stuff. Well, I now become not only a great property because I got a great product where there's value add that the buyer's interested in because I've owned it for a long time and there's upside on rents and maybe adding additional units and all that kind of stuff. But now I've got the most favorable financing. So I'm taking advantage of the market because I'm the only game in town. And I get to squeeze that buyer for as much money as possible because I know that what I'm offering them will give them an opportunity to refinance in two years with CMHC. They're going to get all their money out. They're going to own the property. They're going to know exactly how much is going to be their carrying costs. Like 
it's such a great strategy that in Toronto doesn't happen very often, but those opportunities are there. And I'll explain how this works for the buyer now too. Those opportunities are there. But when the market, you know, let's say their interest rates come back down, which again, question mark. If the markets do come back down, now I'm in competition with every other building owner out there too, because the financing environment's the same. So if I'm willing to offer the VTB today for those two years and I find a, the right skilled operator, it means that I have an edge up on all the other vendors in the market where I can actually get more money for my building. I can, you know, maybe defer some capital gains. I can collect some interest along the way, whatever it is. Sometimes you could be doing 0% interest. I don't know, whatever you negotiate. But bottom line is now I have an advantage where those skilled operators have no other choice but to come to me. And if I'm presenting them with a good enough opportunity for them to refinance in two years and get all their money out, it's a win-win for everybody. And now as the, as the vendor, you're playing the market essentially because one, you are hoping that interest rates go back down because you want this person to refinance out and get all your money. But two, if the, mar- if the interest rates do go back up, you're going to be very happy that you made that deal, right? Because it was only going to be worse if the interest rates keep going up, right? So you got out of the market in time. So I think it's a real win-win right now for vendors who don't, which there's a ton of them that I deal with. There's a lot of them out there who don't have mortgages on their properties to sell their multifamily right now to somebody with fresh blood. Because the guys that I deal with, are older. They got tenants, they got relationships with, they give Christmas presents to. They've been trying to run this building for so long and the rents have only gone up so much and that they do everything so nice. They're fantastic people. They have great relationships. The reason they are who they are is because of their personality types. They've got no problems with the tenants. It's it's a fantastic lifestyle that makes you feel really good. But, but it's not the best strategy if you want to make money. And so you need to get somebody who's young, who's got the pressure on them that says, I need to turn over these units. I need to be able to get out of five cap, you got 20 times income. If I can get $10,000 more per unit annually, that's $200,000 increase in the value of the property. Why not pay the tenant $50,000 to leave? Why not be able to write him a check that's going to be able to increase the value of my property? I'm refinancing in two years. I'm going to be able to recapture all of that, you know? Put that on the spreadsheet. Make sure you understand what you're getting into and that you can create a win-win. Now the tenant who's never seen $50,000 in their life has 50 grand that they can go and rent a place somewhere else. Maybe they wanted to leave the city. Maybe they wanted to live with family. I don't know. But there's so many ways that an energetic operator can come in and turn these properties around that the current owners are never going to do. They don't have the energy, the motivation, maybe the knowledge. It's not going to happen, right? So this is an opportunity for buyers in this market because of those type of situations, if you can find them and an opportunity for vendors, because those buyers will pay you the most amount of money. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's a really valid point there. For a lot of people, we say, oh, the numbers don't work. The numbers don't work. Well, why doesn't it work? A lot of the times it's, uh, it's financing, right? So what can we do to fix it? And to your point is negotiate with the seller, see if there's an assumable mortgage or if there's rents, see if you can get vacancies. But I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, getting vacancies is probably much more challenging because any realtor would let them know if you can get vacancies, then we would just obviously relist it at a higher price. So you're really better off negotiating debt turn. Don't don't rule it out though. So I, w- I wouldn't agree wholly. I would say sometimes, yes, there's going to be some stuff like that. But really, you know, you factor that in into the price, right? So when somebody's af- asking you for vacant possession and, you know, like, okay, well, how much are they paying me? What is that worth to me? The owner of the building is the best person to get cash for keys done. They've got relationships with these people. They'll get it done the cheapest. They'll have the highest chance of getting it done. The, the relationship will be, you know, a, a much stronger relationship. So 
I would actually advise if you can ask the seller for vacant possession and to try to help them negotiate with the tenants and even start like throwing the money around at that point, like you can try to get that all done up front. Some sellers won't do it. Some sellers just, they just aren't interested in it because they know the the work that's entailed. But other times you'd be surprised. I had properties where the sellers got the whole, I've had some like, it's so funny. Like I've had properties where there was a seven unit, no, a nine unit. She got seven vacancies with, with like no effort. Another one, 11 unit, they got nine of 10, right? So it it's out there. There's people like, I don't know if the tenants don't know what they're doing or maybe they're just a relationship with the landlord is really good. But some of these were just like, I need you to go. Here's the notice. This is what I need you to sign. Da, 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 da. And it was like, okay, you know, that sucks. You're selling the bill. Like, don't, don't think like everyone knows what you know. That's one of the investors' big mistakes, right? Is like, we're so smart about all these little laws and all this rules and, and, and past experiences. You don't know what the tenant knows. You don't know what the seller knows, the landlord. Try to figure out what's possible before, you know, you commit to anything because, you know, you might be surprised. Oh, absolutely right. Like one of my deals that I did last year, the market was pretty slow around the fall time. It was listed at 340. This is in Sudbury, mind you. And uh, I was able to get the seller to give vacant possession and drop the price down to 310, right? And then so when I went to refinance it, I would just tell the appraisers, look at the old listing, look at the financials. In my head, I knew it was vacant possession, but it doesn't reflect, to your point that you mentioned earlier, it doesn't reflect on the MLS listing. So people will take that as face value. Appraisers will take that at face value. And I would say four months later, yeah, this is what I bought it for. And I turned around all the units. I did ABC. This is what it should be worth now. Right. And it, yeah, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Investors make assumptions. I am guilty of that as well. I'll make, we all are. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's, it's only, it's only if you're working in the, in the background that you see all the, all the options that people have in some of the deals that get put together. And also there's a huge value in the buyer having the right story for the seller to want to work with. I know it sounds hokey pokey, but I'm telling you, when you can connect with the seller and you can get in there and you're a young investor, a couple investor, a new Canadian investor, a just getting started investor, a save the world investor, whatever, you connect with the seller based on your story and the seller is then going to want to be more accommodating. They're going to want to look at all of the factors that is going to help you put this deal together. And you tell them like, I'm trying to pay the most amount of money for your building that I possibly can. I'm not trying to buy it for a deal. This is what I got to do. This is all the things that are in my way. If you give me this financing, if you drop the price, if you get vacant possession, if you whatever, then I'm able to, you know, come up to this price, which is like the highest I can possibly pay. If these things aren't in place, then I have no choice but to pay lower. And I don't want that for you. I want you to get as much money out of this as you can. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, a lot of people know that the, the sort of the skilled operators work like that, but some of them don't. I've noticed some of them don't. And that's um, a hindrance. I kind of want to switch the topic over to you do residential properties as well on top of. Yeah, yeah, correct? yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. So what are you seeing on the day to day residential property side? And I ask this, like even outside of an investor view is because yeah. the majority of buyers now and the market makers are not necessarily going to be investors on the single family side, right? Usually they're going to be home buyers. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a good general sentiment gauge because fix and flippers, people who do small time 
I don't know, triplex conversion, so on and so forth, they're going to be impacted by what is happening on the day-to-day residential side. So yeah, I mean, what are you noticing there? We had the worst September in like 20 something years for a number of sales and listings have piled up now that are almost where they were in May, 2020 when the world was ending. So, you know, it's, there's problems out there. Um, you know, I put a deal together on the weekend where it was someone bought three properties last year. They thought they were going to be flipping houses. Their agent told them they were going to make money. Then when the market changed and their private financing was through the roof, their agent tried to sell it for them, couldn't sell it. So she came to us and said, like, I need to move these. So we moved two of them. She lost some money. The third one, I just moved on the weekend. And, uh, you know, she made money on that one, but the losses on the other two, like overshadow that by a lot. And um, so the buyer was an end user, you know, first time buyer renting a place, I think maybe living at home with family or something like that. They needed a property. They got it for a, a good value compared to, you know, where it was um, definitely compared to where it was back in February, 2022, but even six months ago, because we didn't get a lot of showings and we didn't have a lot of people through the door. And uh, they were the only offer that we had got. And uh, they knew what to do. They, you know, they brought the closing date. They brought the deposit check. They came in firm with no conditions because it was a newly renovated property with permits and it made sense. So, you know, there are buyers out there, but they're buyers who need to buy. I don't think there's anybody out there right now who's just going around saying, hey, you know what? I think I'll buy some real estate. We still have a heck of a lot of people who are looking to live somewhere and they don't want to jump into the rental market. So it's never going to disappear. The agents who are sort of, you know, busier, bigger teams, more reputable agents, that kind of stuff, they'll always have business. Doesn't matter what the market conditions are. All those people who are sort of on the outsides, like the investors, the flippers, the, you know, whatever, second property, uh, you know, moving just for the, for the sake of it, those type of people, they're not buying right now. And so it takes away a lot of the volume that real estate agents are going to be doing to focus just on like how that impacts investors and, and, and people who are out there understand that, you know, there's not a lot of competition out there right now for you. There isn't going to be a flock of, of buyers, you know, going to every property. You'll still see it on a few properties that are aggressively priced, but on those offer nights, nobody's going crazy. They haven't been going crazy for a long time. We've been, we've been lucky a few times getting somebody just to pay like a lot more, you know, than maybe what it would have sold if there wasn't competition. But for the most part, they're all coming in and they're all, sometimes they're all under asking. Sometimes they're all uh, around the same price and it's, you know, where it should be. But there's, there's no craziness in the market right now too. So the investors just have to think along those same lines. If you're going to be going out and buying a property, understand that there's not as much competition. And if there is, they all feel the same way about you paying that price. None of them are going to be trying to outbid the last guy on the street or something like that. They're all going, oh my gosh, what if, what if, what if interest rates? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, recession. Oh my gosh. And so- then they're all thinking the same. So just, you know, stay level-headed and, you know, chase the properties that, you know, make sense to your strategy, right? Which is every market, there is a strategy to buy in. If you're telling me that there is not an opportunity in this market right now, you're not looking hard enough. You need to figure out what it is that your strategy is in order to be able to make sense of the conditions right now. But there is no such thing as a market that is impossible to make money in. It's just not the same way that it was working before. And probably what was working before only worked because the market was appreciating. And that there's a lot of people who got lucky and the market made them look like geniuses that didn't really have a strategy. 
and they made money just because the market went up. But if you had a sound strategy and the market went up, then you definitely made money. But use that same strategy, just tweak it a little bit and, and figure out what the next opportunity looks like. Absolutely. Yeah, there, I, I totally agree. Every market, there's a way to make money. And it may mean having to learn a new skill set as a real estate investor. Prior in Toronto, I'm sure single family homes and condos used to cash flow, although maybe 10 years ago, then you started seeing duplex conversions and then triplex conversions. And then now if those don't work, like what other strategies could you implement? Maybe if you are, if you have deeper pockets and you're good at negotiating with tenants, it's possible to negotiate with tenants, renovate burr or just flip vacant properties, right? Like there's so many different strategies. Mm -hmm. A lot of that, some of them are riskier than others. Some of them are more difficult to execute than others, but it's about, it's about being creative ultimately, right? I mean, it's sort of what you mentioned there is, there was that investor that needed to take some losses, needed to sell their properties. What pricing strategy or what strategy did you use to list the property and to negotiate with buyers? Because as you mentioned, there's not many buyers walking through the property in general. So how do you get an offer out of that? Or is it just a matter of just pricing it cheaply? Every property is different. So I wouldn't say like there's like this one way to price a property, right? I mean, I would say in most of the time, like 90% of the property types and the areas in the GTA, you need to have the most amount of value compared to any other property on the market. You need to be the next one to sell. You need to ensure that if a buyer buys in that neighborhood, that it's going to be your property instead of your neighbors. Because in a downward trending market, the next one to sell will be the highest price sale. The second one will be lower. The third one, even lower. So it doesn't necessarily mean price at low, like an offer date strategy. And it doesn't necessarily mean be the lowest price in the neighborhood because there's different factors with different types of homes and all that kind of stuff. But you need to present the most value when you're pricing. And that if there's another property out there and you're going to be like, well, maybe they'll like my property better because it's, you know, got uh, blue shutters. It's like, give your head a shake. That's not going to happen. Properly evaluate it. Agents need to be, and sellers need to be extremely observant on what the market's doing every single week in their, in their neighborhood. So then that way, when the property comes up, there is really no other option. So even though we took under asking on the weekend there on the property, there wasn't another option out there for someone to get a detached property that was renovated in that area with parking. You know, there was higher price, right? By, I don't know, more, more than us. But bottom line is where we were priced was a price that allowed for buyers to see that this was a good option for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, to, to your point, like even sometimes taking a losses as a seller, a lot of sellers don't like to take losses, but that's the reality of the market. As, as you mentioned, things appear to be getting worse, not better over time. And mm-hmm. you just sort of have to swallow your pride. And if it means taking a loss now, yeah. sometimes it comes down to unless you again, you have deep pockets, you're willing to put more down payment and you want to rent it out. Sure. Be my guest. But if you're not willing to do that, then there, frankly, there's limited options of what you can do as a seller. And you have to pick your poison ultimately. I think the best advice I could tell any seller would be if you can hang on to the property until you no longer are taking a loss on it and be comfortable, even if you've rented it out and the tenant stopped paying you, but you could hang on to that property forever, hang on to it. Real estate's a great investment. Long-term, based on hundred years worth of data, you won't lose. Don't know when that's going to be. Don't know how long it's going to take or what the stress level between now and then is going to be. But at the end of the day, 
if that's possible for you, but if you're telling me your interest rate's too high, you can't afford the payments, that if the tenant stopped paying you, you would be going bankrupt, like all that risk that's involved with owning real estate. And that if you had to do that for 10 years, it would totally ob- obliterate your finances. Well, you know, maybe you should take a loss and move on to greener pastures here. Right. Oh, for sure. Dude, I have like, I think it's three tenants right now not paying you rent. And it is painful. The good thing is I have liquid reserves. I'm not looking at selling at the moment because I know where the market condition is at the moment. So it's probably not the best time, especially with a non-paying tenant. So instead I'm going through the LTB and yeah, shitty, it's going to take six months, but when it pans out, it'll be vacant. I'll rent it out for market rents and there'll probably be cash flow positive once again. Uh, but not everyone is, is, is in that situation, right? So obviously people have to assess their, their own situation there. Let me ask you about being very active in the market, have you noticed any amazing sort of deals? And you're like, wow, how did it sell for X amount of dollars? Could you, could you give us maybe an example or two? I'm, I, I'm sort of putting you on the spot here. No, that's okay. That's okay. Like, yeah. I mean, I was just talking about one down in Cabbage Town with a, with a client the other day and, you know, the agent had it listed. He dropped the price significantly. It was two triplexes merged together. So two semis, three units of, uh, occupied by um, three long-term tenants and three units vacant because the the owner was occupying that side. And so they were selling it and then they started dropping the price, dropping the price. So when my client and I got there to go look at it, it was like 2.1 or two or something like that. And we were like, you know, it just doesn't make sense. We couldn't make sense of the numbers. TCHC building next door. Like it was a rough part of town. Like it was just like, you know what, maybe this is not the right one. And the agent was like, oh, you know, it's around X dollars if, if, if you want to bring an offer because the guy's motivated. Right. And we were just like, we can't make sense of it. And then we saw that it sold for like 1 million 650 or something crazy, you know? And it was just like, well, have you told us that we could have got it for that price? Maybe it was one seven. I don't know. It was a number that I was like, wow, like what a deal, you know? So like read the, read the room, you know, like, you know, go out there and see what the situation is. Okay. Like then owners, uh, you know, left to state sale, um, older person who's like, you know, needs a downsize. I don't know what the situation's all could be because there's a bunch of different ones and sometimes they're not as easy to understand or to be able to read through what the agent's trying to tell you. But sometimes you got to just make an offer and you got to, you know, that's why I tell my investors, like just make an offer and see what they say. You know, when the time comes that a buyer, uh, sorry, a seller gets motivated. When I'm dealing with, let's say I I get 30 showings and I get, you know, 10 phone calls and um, 20 of them said, you know, no interest. 10 were like, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, this is something we'd be into, but we're overpriced or the value is just not there. So I'm just giving an example. Then my seller one day calls me and says, TK, I want this thing sold tonight. Right. Who am I going to call? Right. I'm going to call the 10 people who called me because they're the ones who actually showed some interest. Now, out of those 10 people, if one person had brought me an offer and it was a low offer and my guy said, forget it, reject it. We don't want anything to do with this. Okay. Now, when my seller calls me and says, TK, I want this sold tonight. Who do you think the seller is going to ask me to call first? The guy who got the offer. Yep. Yep. Right. It's in their mind. It's the first person. So I call that guy and say, hey, you know, can you bring me that offer? He brings in the offer. It's got 11 p.m. irrevocable. It's four hours. I page it out to everyone. I call everyone. Nobody's prepared. Nobody's ready. He ends up getting it for a steal of the deal because the seller was motivated at that moment. They haven't been motivated for the last three months, but something changed that day oh. because I brought an offer. I'm now the first on their list. I love that you mentioned that example. So I recently, not recently, let's call it probably around three months ago, 
put in an offer on a five unit. Uh, it's in the Windsor Essex region. It was fully tenanted, which is probably why it wasn't super attractive. I added clauses saying that it's conditional on me negotiating cash for keys and being successful in that negotiation. Plus, I put in an offer price at 510. They wanted 520. I wasn't willing to go. I know it's 10K. Some people might be like, ah, not a whole ton in the grand scheme of things. For me, I'm not, I don't need, if I don't get a deal done, that's okay. Like I, I, I felt the market was going to get worse over time. And just, when was it on Friday? The realtor calls me back and said, hey, are you still interested in putting an offer? I was like, yeah, absolutely. But it's going to be lower than the previous offer that I put in, right? And that seller owned the property for 15 years. So they're in no sort of motivated position to sell. But I think they only had like two walkthroughs other than other than me. So they started to realize, all right, like if we really want this sold, we need to sell it at a cheap price. And it seems like you found another prime example again in Toronto. It works in any city. Right. It's just you yep. got to be consistent with it. And they I called just, you. You had a seller yeah. reach out to you and say, I'm ready to sell my property for a discount or at least in my mind, it's a discount. Yeah. But they never would have called you if you hadn't made that offer. Exactly. Exactly. Because there's a lot of people as a flipper, there's a lot of people who walk in properties and say that they're interested and they'll verbally low balls, like, put it on paper. Not that we're going to accept it, put it on paper. And all of a sudden they get scared to put it on paper. If it's a fantastic deal, you don't want to be that person. No. And as someone who deals with a lot of volume and agents and buyers and sellers, I can't remember everybody or remember the guy from three months ago. I mean, I have no idea who they were. Right. But if I go and I'm like, oh, that guy made an offer. So I type in the property address. I see all that guy made the, oh, there you go. Let's call him first. You know, it's like, I've got this reference point to be able to find out who's interested and who's not. Mm Mm-hmm. And then another point that I wanted to bring up, speaking of examples of properties that, that sold, I saw one, I don't know, maybe, maybe if you saw, it's a single family home. It was on, Ma- I think it's Montrose, near, uh, Trinity Bellwoods. Yeah. Uh, it was a townhouse and it sold for 990000 I want to say. And it's probably seven or eight out of 10 condition. So it was yeah. in pretty decent shape. And that's unreal. Like Trinity Bellwoods is prime, 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 prime location. And you were talking about like a freehold property for less than a million. Yeah. That was the cheapest comp by far. That's all that you can check it out. But um, it's, you know, like it's just someone who lowballed and there were no other offers on the table. The seller ended up taking it. The agent's motivated. This is another thing too. In this market, you know, when the agents put in their description, motivated seller, right? Yeah. When the market gets tough, you know what the agents put in their descriptions? What is it? Motivated agent. So they actually put that. <laughs> you no know why? Because they're not selling anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's they, a joke. All this mo- they don't put that. But that's tr- truth though. Agents right now, if they're not doing a lot of deals, they're going to go and sit down with their seller and say, oh no, you're 990, you know, the market's changed, interest rates, it's the only offer we got, you need to sell, let's just take it without slowing things down and looking at the data and, you know, waiting for the right offer, right? They put in money on staging. They put in money on photography, on cleaning the house, and then listing costs. So they're motivated to get the deal. They're motivated. They're, they're only having a few sales this year. Yeah. The sales have dropped. So most mm-hmm. average agents sell in very few properties. And so they have uh, the desire to sell more properties. So, you know, send those offers up. Couple of quick questions before we get to our last two questions here. So you mentioned over the long term, it still seems that you're fairly bullish um, just based on, again, the 100 years of data. But where do you see the market going in the short to medium term? 
specifically in Toronto? And are there any segments of assets that are going to get hit harder than others, whether that be freehold condominiums, apartment buildings? I think everything's going down. And I think that if you buy the right property, that won't matter to you because your strategy isn't going to be a one or two year strategy, which is short and midterm. And that if you're looking for what any investor should be looking for is, is, you know, how to get out all your money, how to refinance it, how to add it to your inventory of, of rental housing, how to, whatever your strategy is, and that it's going to build on whatever portfolio that you've got long-term. And so you shouldn't be worried about it, the value of the asset going down over the next 12 to 24 months. Because like newsflash, it's going to, that's what's happening. Look at how much pain there is in the market. It's just what it is. But if your strategy is only to buy properties that you're going to flip within that amount of time, I mean, it's probably just not the right market for you, right? And, and those type of people, uh, there'll always be a market that won't work for that strategy, mm-hmm. you know? And so is that really a strategy? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm only relying on the market. Let me probe deeper into that. Why do you think that the market is going to go down in the next, oh, it's already come it's down, down. It's way down. Part. It's trending down. Whether you get one month up, one month down. Bottom line is we got more listings coming up, less sales. The precursor to price erosion. That's what happens. When listings start drying up, we start seeing all these sales. We go, man, something's about to pop and prices go up over the next few months. Now we've got the opposite. We're seeing listings climb, less and less sales. It's only a matter of time before sellers are forced to sell. And when that buyer, when that seller goes to list their property, they'll say, well, what's the last sale on my street? And if it's on Montrose or if it's on somewhere else, they'll see that the last one sold for less than what they hoped for. That's what the buyer will want to pay. It just takes a while before those numbers start to show in the data. Now, hypothetically, and this is hypothetical because I don't want anyone to quote me that this is going to happen, but let's say that rates come down, fixed rates in particular. And everyone's jumping back, back in Canada. <laughs> you think that it's going to just- If rates yeah. ever go back down to anywhere close to where they were, it's a, it's a free for all. But I just don't, I just, the reason I'm saying this so confidently is because all the signs are there for the yeah. Bank of Canada not to make that mistake again. And that the- best case scenario would be they pause and that they maintain for an extended period of time to let the dust settle before the economy, you know, forces their hand to uh, drop rates. But I just don't see them making that mistake again. I I agree with that. We're tied to the hip with the U.S. Doesn't look like the U.S. is going to cut rates anytime soon. If any James at 100 percent chance of recession. Yeah. (laughs) And there's more up. There's more potential for a rate hike, if anything. I think the yeah. Federal Reserve in the last uh, in the last meeting they mentioned something about a soft landing not being a baseline case, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? Hard, yeah by mistake, Jay yeah. <laughs> yeah. mentioned yeah. that, and obviously, like read into that, right? Because as a buyer, as an investor, as a seller, you need to keep in mind what the Federal Reserve is going to do as the next step, because not every, not the the average Joe was not looking at it or, or keeping. Up, up, up to snub with all of those news, but it could help you project your next move that you're going to make as, as, as an investor. Okay. And last question here, so, rent. What do you think is going to happen to rents? Because in my opinion, rents are more tied to incomes than prices is. I can understand why prices diverge because of wealth inequality. People with assets can continue to buy, but rents are for a lot of the time, middle-class people, below middle-class, some upper-class people as well are renting. But it's definitely more tied to, to what the rents would be is, is his income. So do you continue seeing rents continue to rip up or is there a ceiling to rent really? <laughs> um, look, I mean, well, you know, why are rents going up? Because the people who would normally be buying can't afford to buy. 
And the people who are coming to Canada now, you know, for the first time are only looking to rent, right? And then you've got obviously the foreign uh, students. We've got, uh, you know, a lack of purpose-built rental housing. We've got, you know, housing starts are starting to collapse. So I think the recipe for rents to continue to go up is there. I don't think that there's any other reason why they would stop down. It makes sense. Like there's got to be a ceiling. Well, but we said that 10 years ago, we said that before, you know, so I think that there is going to be pressure on rents for the same amount of time that the market is sidelined because of interest rates. I think people will just be not interested in buying housing because it's on the downward trend and that they will be going to rent properties. They'll look at what their cost will be. We used to look at, well, how much am I going to pay for rent? And then they'd say, well, how much does it cost to own the house? Well, now owning a home is way more than that rental payment. So it's not like we could justify and say, well, eventually people will just go into the housing market. No. What's it going to cost you? It's going to cost you three, $4,000 a month, you know, to put in. Well, your interest payment on that $500,000 a month, $500,000 mortgage is going to be the same amount uh, per year, right? At 7%. And then you're going to have property tax, maintenance, you know, utilities, all those other costs on top of that. So at the end of the day, and where are you getting a $500,000 mortgage? What is that going to buy you, right? So at the end of the day, there's still going to be pressure on rents because of those factors that I named. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical, but I, as a landlord, I realize that, and again, not, not, not that I invest in Toronto, but in, in the other areas, what I'm seeing is, is that while rents are climbing, either the tenant quality is deteriorating because that doesn't necessarily translate to great tenant quality or as a landlord to achieve the higher rent, I have to accept things that I'm not necessarily comfortable with. So for a student rental that I rented out, for me to get super high rent, there was a bunch of students that just wanted to jump in there, right? With a two bedroom property that I was looking at renting out, four people wanted to stay there instead of two to hit that maximum ceiling of rent. So although incomes may not necessarily catch up, that just means that renters would, and we're seeing this in the news, right? On TikTok, wherever you see that, there's just a bunch of people that have to split the rent amongst each other. So it may become a less ideal living situation, but could still have upward pressure on rent. Yeah. If you're looking to get into a new business, uh, try bunk beds. Bunk beds. <laughs> bunk beds, yeah. That's start, start manufacturing and selling bunk beds. They're going to be really popular yeah. soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, landlords are going to be jumping all over that. Yeah, but tenant quality is going down and, and there'll be more issues because of that, because there will be some economical issues. There will be people because of the economy that are going to yeah. be really pressed and they'll just not pay their rent and you got to be careful of those type of situations. But overall, there's going to be a lot of people. You know that some of the best tenants are? I don't know if this is like, politically correct to say that. But, you know, when you get a tenant who's been here in Canada their whole life, and they've grown up here and they're still renting at 40 years old. And you're kind of just like, you know, what's going on? They can be problems. When you got someone who just came to this country from, you know, many different places, they want a squeaky clean record. They don't want to cause any problems. Yeah. They don't want to be taken to the landlord tenant board. They don't want, you know, they're just very happy that they're here and that, you know, their, their living conditions are, are poor, but they're like, you know, paying with three, four other people in, in one apartment, like you're mentioning, they pay their rent. Yeah. And if it's time for them to go, they leave. They don't yeah. cause a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. I know? told, yeah. It's the I Canadian tenants that. that are the biggest problems. Go to the landlord tenant board, look at all the people. And, and not, it's not all case by case. I'm just saying it. for the most part, that's what I see. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's sort of for my personal anecdotal experience, it's the exact same thing as you mentioned there. Anyways, we're going to jump into the last segment of the podcast. Our final two questions here, TK. Wondering what your five-year goal and objective is, whether it could be in the business, it could be in life, it could be in anything. 
Um, so five-year projections for me are just to, you know, grow my business as far as my real estate sales business, right? So just continue to help people buy and sell real estate, you know, get to my, uh, you know, level of success that I'm hoping to achieve as far as like dollar volume and, and income levels and all that kind of stuff. Um, investment side, I'm getting more into the development side. So, you know, because I'm hanging around with Daryl so much, you know, we're investing in developments. We're doing one in Forest Hill. We're, you know, looking at a bunch of other different sites that we're doing. So I just want to be not just investing financially into that, but also intellectually so that I'm really developing my understanding of how to develop high rise condos and purpose built rentals and stuff like that so that I can have a, a deeper understanding how I can help my clients and also help myself invest. And, um, you know, I'm into jujitsu. So jujitsu is my sport. It's what I do every week. And, uh, you know, five years, I would expect to earn my black belt. I would expect to continue to compete and that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm continuing on that journey with my kids. Both my sons do that. And so that's something that's really important to me and the lifestyle and, uh, keeps me grounded when you got lots of stress in your life and you go to the gym and someone's trying to break your arm or choke you out. You forget about that client who just, you know, told you where to go or that agent who doesn't know what he's doing or what the deal you lost or whatever. Right. So. It's a great, it's great therapy if anybody's listening and you haven't tried or you want to get your kids into it. Uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a great sport and it's a great family activity. Awesome. Yeah, get your black belt, then onto the second degree black belt. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. And the second question here, what is the biggest risk that you see for newer or experienced investors in the current market? Um, I guess, uh, you know, making assumptions based on information you got from somebody who hasn't done what you're doing. If you're going to go into any space, follow a path that somebody is actively succeeding in. Currently today, they are doing it. You are witnessing what it is that they're doing and it's successful for them and that you can follow that blueprint. But hearing about something or learning from someone who isn't doing it or you know someone who did it a long time ago and you feel like that strategy is going to work today because it worked for that person, there's so many pieces to the puzzle that you may not understand. And uh, you really got to be careful uh, before you start going full steam ahead. Copying somebody else, I think they say that's the highest form of flattery. People love to share their information and, uh, you know, find people who are doing what you want to do and literally just copy exactly what they're doing and, uh, you know, try to work harder and uh, be more passionate about it and and you'll succeed. That's great advice there. Yeah. attend networking events, right? To, to, to connect with those people that are doing what you want to do. You can't just do it from your house. You got to, you got to go out and shake some hands and meet people. You, you so. got to meet the people. Yeah. Exactly. And kudos to you, Austin. I mean, I, I saw you, I told you this already, but I'll tell your listeners as well. I, I read the article about you. I heard you, you know, I saw you on social media, you know, so I was super impressed by, you know, all the work that you were doing. And, uh, I think it was great press, you know, it made me familiar with who you are. And I think what you're doing is you're developing your name and brand in this space as being someone who is not just active, but also somebody who is knowledgeable and uh, trustworthy. And I think you got a great reputation and I think the sky's the limit for you, man. I think you've got uh, what it takes and you can just see how much energy and passion you put into this and you're already doing well, but you're going to do better and better and the sky's the limit. So good for you. I appreciate that, man. I, uh, I hate compliments, but I'll take it. <laughs> I never know how to react to them. But no, no, really, sincerely, uh, thank you so much for that. Um, TK, if people want to contact you, if they want to reach out to you, how could they best do so? The best way is, uh, depending on, you know, what platform you're on, if you go to YouTube, you can go to the Canadian Real Estate Show. 
give us a subscribe and uh, my uh, links to some of my um, content and, and social media accounts are there. On Instagram, it's armbar broker, uh, armbar underscore broker. So you can find me there or you can just look up my name, TK Butler, and you'll see uh, profiles to, to reach out to me through our website or, or realtor.ca. Beauty, beauty. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, because it was a fantastic episode, make sure to leave a comment, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend. It helps bring great guests like TK out to the podcast. And then until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.